Hello and welcome to The Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, plus insight and analysis of the beautiful game. I'm Duncan Castles, the Transfer Window's very own Kaiser Duck, Johnny McFarlane, has forsaken us for a beery evening of dreams with Kenny G. Ian McGarry is enjoying his well-deserved butterfly expedition, so we are joined today by one of our irregular guest journalists. He is Belgian Red Devil extraordinaire Christophe Terror, who we are going to offer the choice of sobriquets for this edition of the Transfer Window. So, Christophe, would you prefer to be the Eden Hazard of football journalism or the Kevin De Bruyne of football journalism? Happy-go-lucky mercurial genius or intense, hard-working master of every angle? Yeah, that's a difficult one to choose from. Can I choose the Marwan Fellaini of uh, Belgian journalism? <laughs> yes, if you can explain why you are the, the Marwan Fellaini of, of Belgian journalism for us. Uh, because uh, that means hard working and using all all your body parts to get information like elbow work to get your information so that's what we need in our business sometimes you need to push a little bit and that's our business is basically elbow work to get the news you sometimes have to be a little bit hard but i don't give headbutts and stuff like that so you haven't been red carded in your news gathering activities to date? Uh, I yeah, I was once banned by a club, but that happens to everybody, I think. So, <laughs> and you, that club shall remain nameless. Uh, no, I used to follow uh, Racing Genk, and it was in a period, and uh, it's already uh, almost fourteen years ago, I think, that I got banned for only two weeks. So, uh, wrote something bad about the manager, and then I got banned. So, yeah. Okay, well, well, my first ban as a, a journalist in the UK was from Arsenal um, for daring to ask Arsene Wenger what he thought about Seth Blatter's comment that uh, women footballers should wear tighter shorts. So um, that was my, my first red card in, uh, in sports journalism. Uh, so I'm not sure who'd, who's got the better one there. Well, it's... it's a it's yeah <laughs> yours is a silly band to be fair silly reason there. maybe maybe they were right i was a bit too critical of things at that point but yeah it was yeah basically calling it the manager will be sacked and then he didn't get sacked that's basically it and then they banned me for putting pressure that was the way it worked but it only lasted two weeks so after two weeks i was back but the manager was not really talking to me <laughs> Okay, well, let's start with some news. Um, we'll bring the listeners an update on a story we broke on the Transfer Podcast last month, which was of Manchester City's interest in Adama Traore, who's uh, converted himself into something like the finished product this season, um, creating many chances and starting to score goals and, and doing things that other players um, aren't capable of with that sort of combination of physicality and technical skills. Um, what I can tell you is that Wolverhampton Wanderers will not let Adama Traore go easily in the summer window. Uh, they are expecting offers. They know Manchester City are um, keen on the player and Manchester City are going to embark on a, on a significant upgrade of their first team in the summer. But the information I have is that Wolves owners, Fosun International, expect 
um, at a, a bid of 150 million euros for the player before they will consider it. That's what they're pricing Adama Traore at um, in this marketplace. And um, you have to say, Fosun International, while they don't have the money that um, Abu Dhabi has, obviously they're not um, uh, insignificantly wealthy and they, they've shown themselves able to to stand and retain players so far. So it's going to be an interesting uh, period when when that uh, those bids start to come in. What's your what's your thoughts on Traore, Christoph, and and that valuation that Wolves have placed upon him? Well, valuations have become crazy in recent years. But if you consider that Eden Hazard, with one year left on his contract, was worth around uh, hundred million pounds as the basic fee, maybe. It's the price for, for, for wingers nowadays, between 100 and 150 million pounds for young wingers. Usman Dembele, Barcelona, paid 100 million pounds for him too. So, yeah, yeah, 150 is a lot of money. But Adama Traoré maybe has all the attributes that Pep Guardiola wants in a player. Like, he's, yeah, he's damn fast. He's one of the fastest players, if not the fastest player in the Premier League. And if Leroy Sané is leaving them, because that's what everybody expects. They, Sane has that combination of speed and unpredictiveness like Traore too. Sane was fur, is, is a little bit further in his development, I think, and more clinical. But it would be sort of like for like. And it's the type of player that uh, Guardiola really likes on his wing. So I can see it happening but definitely not at 150 million because then Manchester City will have to almost triple their, their transfer record. What, what I don't see them doing, to be fair. Yeah, you're right. It would be a huge jump in um, fee for Manchester City have tried to keep... They bought a lot of players around the 60 million euro mark, but they've tried yeah, to yeah, keep... Yeah, 50, 50, 60 million more and... Definitely. Also because they need a day plan on overhaul of the squad. They need three four players and if you use almost yeah huge part of that budget already for one player then you will get issues i think with financial fair play and stuff because they've invested lots of money in that team a few years ago too and that is still on the balances too so it will be balancing the books with that one i don't see them paying that to be fair if you see that they were not uh, considering to pay like uh, the the 80 million fee for for Harry Maguire because they thought it was not worth it. Do they think that Adamo Traoré is worth 150 million pounds? Not sure of that. Yeah, it's 150 150 million euros is the figure that was was mentioned to me, but uh, the, the point stands. And I, I think you make a good point that that Traoré is seen as being a replacement for Leroy Zani and. In my view, one of the reasons Manchester City have struggled this season is because they haven't had Zani in the team and they, they haven't had that pace kind of from a standing start to go past players in uh, in a deep block and create chances. And, and they've missed that in, in certain games. And I, I can understand why they're targeting Traore as a, as a player who can give them that option if they do indeed lose Leroy Zani. But I'm interested in your... Um, thoughts on what's gone wrong with Manchester City this season. We're now 22 points behind Liverpool after 25 games. Um, Pep Guardiola conceding the league before Christmas, effectively, and now kind of laughing at journalists who even ask him the question 
whether he's conceded the league and given up on it. What would you say have been the fundamental problems that have seen this kind of sharp decline in what was, from a points perspective, the most dominant team we've ever seen in the in the Premier League? Well, I think it all starts with losing Leo Sane, for instance, that well, player that I like a lot and who brings something different to a team. But people forget how many goals he scored and how many assists. He was all, always like the balance, like between 10 and 15 goals and 10 and 15 assists a season. That's something they're missing if Sterling drops off, if Mares doesn't get the level that they want. They had Leroy Sane to come in and make that extra effort. They could they could uh, rotate a little bit more up front too. Another significant fact is losing uh, Emeric Laporte uh, at the back. That was a huge issue, I think. And it uh, it pushed Guardiola also in moving his his players around. And everything went wrong there. Pushing Fernandinho one line back is uh, he's, he does it well as a central defender. But I really rate him uh, as a central midfielder. Although he's he's getting older, he's getting slower, but he's still the master of what you like to call the tactical fall. He is a master in that. He knows when to make fall on a player. And I think that started it all off. And of course, I think after winning two seasons, uh, not almost everything because they didn't win the Champions League, of course. But with a much demanding manager, I think they lost like the 5% focus that is needed uh, for, for, for a team that wants to challenge again. And... Um, we cannot forget that they lost an, an uh, influential figure in the dressing room too with, uh, with Vincent Company. He hasn't played a lot uh, last season. He only played like 10 or 11 Premier League games, but in the games that he played, mostly top games, he was there and he made a good impression. Um, well, people tend to forget sometimes. It's, it's something that Briano once mentioned to me. Um, they have now... Uh, split all the leadership uh, duties over a few players. But company, for instance, with his aura and his dominance, people accepted things. He kept them on their toes because he knew what to say at the right moment. Now other players are doing the speeches, but I don't think they have the influence that company had because that's also what people tell me at the national team at Anderlecht. He's really good at saying the right things at the right moment and finding the right words to touch players, to motivate players, to encourage them to do more. And that's a good help for a manager too. And maybe they're just missing that. Uh, but yeah, it's something they couldn't prepare for because I don't think like if they would have bought any other player except Virgil van Dijk, who has those leadership qualities too. I don't see anybody else at this moment with those leadership qualities in the Premier League. Maybe there are players outside the Premier League, but it's just, just a combination, I think, of many factors why Manchester City are not performing well. And maybe, yeah, some players are getting older too. David Silva getting a year older, not getting to the level that he was before. Aguero, a bit struggling with injuries too. Gabriel Jesus, sometimes good, sometimes bad, not that consistent. It's a bit of a shame because Kevin De Bruyne, I think, is playing his best season uh, so far from what I've seen. It's uh, 
sometimes of a higher standard than the standards he set in 17-18, the season before he got injured. But he can't get his teammates with him. And, of course, for me, uh, Bernardo Silva, who was great last season, he isn't having a great season either. It's, it's with his ups and his downs. Of course, there was the, the, the racism case uh, that affected him, of course, where he was, uh, where he posted uh, quite a racist picture on, on Twitter just to uh, take the piss out of his best mate, uh, Benjamin Mendy. And yeah, it was uh, considered by the FA as racist and that affected him too. Since then, he's not been the same either. So a lot of factors... But I can't name one. I can't name one uh, that I say that's the reason why. And I think Guardiola even is struggling to find why they are struggling. We um, we talked in the the last edition of the podcast about Manchester City being interested in Gabriel, the young Brazilian centre back at Lille, and uh, making contact with his representatives with a view to a a summer move. My information is that they may do two centre-backs in the summer. I've had questions from Manchester City fans asking me, is there any possibility that Vincent Company returns to the club? Do you uh, see that as 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 a, any chance of that happening or is he now settled at Anderlecht and, and moving towards, he's, he's in his management career and, and that's the end of it? Well, he made a decision and he's not the one to come back on decisions. So I don't see him moving back because, yeah, he ended like he wanted to end it with winning the title, being the uh, his Aguero moment, scoring that goal against Leicester. That's his Aguero moment, certainly. Uh, then he uh, lifted the League Cup, he lifted the FA Cup. That was his moment. The mic drop was, was it for him? Leave at your highs, don't come back. And see the worst. I uh, see uh, see a worse Vincent company than he was before. And um, yeah, he's uh, he's in, even even Evan Delecto struggling are currently in the Belgian league. Even him having difficulties running against the brick wall, not getting out of the team what he wants. He still enjoys it. He enjoys that challenge, and I don't see him coming back. How successful has he been implementing the Manchester City Pep Guardiola style of play at Anderlecht as he promised to do when he when he signed up to go back to his club? Well, at the beginning, they, they played that brand of football, but yeah, when results are not coming and he got another head coach in, uh, in Frankfurt County who is more defensive-minded, uh, cautious uh, way of playing, it changed. But sometimes... I think that yeah, company wanted to do a little bit too much with with those youngsters, and um, yeah, he sees passes that other players don't see. If company's not injured at the best of his game, he's the best player in the Belgian league. Uh, but yeah, he thinks faster than the other players, I think, and that's of course an issue when you're playing in a team. If you're if you're smarter than everybody else, if you see things that the other players don't see, so it's quite. A difficult one to copy, definitely with uh, less talented players uh, or younger, less ex- uh, or less experienced players. So I think he underestimated implementing the pep style a little bit. Although there are still little things that you see, they always play out from the back. But a lot of managers do that nowadays. We're talking there about um, potential summer buys for Manchester City. Um, yesterday, the Premier League 
basically conceded defeat on their campaign to have the the summer transfer window end early and get the the other European leagues to follow their their move of the last two seasons and bring it forward before the uh, the Premier League season starts properly. And they've now reverted to a deadline for this 2020 summer window that will be Tuesday, the 1st of September at 5pm. What's your view of that, Christoph? Is that um, uh, a, a sign of the, the weak position they've, they've placed themselves in, in in terms of the, the kind of self-harm that Brexit has caused to, to the Premier League with worries about um, this is their last chance to sign 16-year-olds uh, from the EU and bring them into their academies and they want to maximise the, the, the window in which they are able to do that. Yeah, I wasn't surprised that they did that because I heard already clubs complaining about the early deadline, but I don't think it will change a lot because they will just uh, they will just move most of their business to the last three weeks like it happened before. So I, I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing. I just wanted that it's it's difficult to get this implemented all over the world or even all over Europe because the, the Italian league always start, starts in one of the last weekends of August. The German league, that differs from year to year when they start. The French league is in the middle of August. They never start at the same point. And that's the issue if you want to implement a window just before a league starts there will always be a league that starts later so i knew that they wouldn't convince anybody else to follow and if nobody follows yeah you're there alone and you have to you have to carry the consequences it's a little bit of self-harm because players could still leave uh for other european clubs although not a lot have done that to be fair it was three weeks to offload some players but they even didn't succeed in that. I think the, the the most difficult thing for Premier League clubs nowadays is everybody knows they have a lot of money and yeah, European clubs will just keep on pushing them to get the most out of it. Like some of the clubs in the Belgian league, they uh, they have got like Racing Genk, for instance, who sold Sander Berger and uh, Alisa Mata to uh, one to Aston Villa, one to Sheffield United. They got now more than 30 million uh, pounds in the winter transfer window. And that that's the double of the, of the revenue they get of, of the, the, their match day revenue uh, for two years. Is that what they got now? So, they live from the Premier League and they will keep on trying to push those clubs, pay a lot of money for their players. So I don't know. It's an advantage for them. The extra three weeks, it will only cause more stress, I think, uh, for some teams. Like I, I won't mention uh, West Ham, but they will have deal sheets in again in September instead of at the beginning of August deal sheets. Now they will have deal sheets in September. Some clubs just like are just not capable of doing business in time and always suffer at the last moment. So it will keep on happening when, whenever the deadline is. Talking about those younger players and this last opportunity for Premier League clubs to take the 16-year-old uh, EU talents before that gets uh, removed from them and they're only able to uh, take players when they, when they turn 18. Are there any young Belgian talents that you would expect there to be competition for and a scramble for from the Premier League clubs to sign this summer given it's the it's the last chance to get them in. It's difficult to predict but some of the 
have of the bigger talents at Genk, Anderlecht, and Bruges have already signed new deals like the 15-year-olds and the 16-year-olds. So clubs are definitely anticipating for it. Although it's difficult at the age of 15 or 16, it's really difficult to predict, is he going to be a, a great talent? Isn't he? Like Anderlecht gave debuts, debuts to 17 years old, 17 year old this uh, this summer. So, but I think the scouts, like they always do, will be roaming around those youth games uh, uh, in in Belgium, in Holland, in France all year long and try to get a few of them. But I think a lot of youngsters, also Belgian youngsters, have seen that um, moving as a youngster to a Premier League club is not always beneficial for for your career there was a, a study that was ordered by an uh, by the, by an agency uh in belgium the agency that also represents toby alderweireld and dries mertens they they asked the university of antwerp to look at the careers of players that moved to abroad age of 14 15 16 and checked what came of their careers and the guys who moved to to England at the age of 15 16 they didn't make a great career they earned some money but they didn't make the careers like the guys who stayed till the age of 18 or the age of 19 in the Belgian league in the Dutch league or the French league so that was something big in Belgium too and I think that might have opened the eyes of some youngsters too like first play in your first team let's say at Anderlecht at the age of 16, 17, 18 like let's say Yuri Tielemans did then make the move abroad at the age of 20 maybe to France, to Germany a league where you can develop and then make that step to the Premier League because we also have the examples of, of De Bruyne and Lukaku both moving to Chelsea uh, as as young kids and having to go to the first to the loan options and then push for a move to get a chance at the Premier League. Premier League really is difficult for youngsters to to get through only if you are physically uh, physically that great or you're an exceptional talent like let's say Wayne Rooney for instance and then you get through it. But it's a really difficult league and I think youngsters have realized that by seeing some of the guys fail, like Lukaku, like the Brianna, not getting the chances that they wanted to get. You you mentioned uh, that tactic by the uh, the Belgian league to keep uh, their younger players for a longer period of time. Um, what's the top salary that a sixteen year old would be uh, signing on to in Belgium? Because in the Premier League, we're looking at sixteen year old players getting guarantees of of tens of millions of pounds in their first contract um, through various payment methods, but essentially being set up for life uh, before they've even kicked the ball professionally. How how much can the, the, the top talents in Belgium make at 16 if they choose to remain in the country? Well, not a lot of money, to be fair. I don't know the the big figures but usually they sign contracts like and um they don't earn a lot they give some money to the parents like here here's some money for you to stay or for the agent and then they start up getting higher wages i i know for instance but it was already because he was the team like guys like vincent company they were about at one million euros a year at the age of 18 and 
company that was like 20 years ago, but that was really a top, top salary for a youngster at that time. So I think really top youngsters will be, yeah, not at the age of 16, but at the age of 18, they will be maybe between 400 euros a year or 600 euros a year, but then ha- they have to be playing in the first team too. Like, I'm going to give the example of Kevin De Bruyne when he signed his first contract as a 16-year-old. He signed like the minimum contract for youngsters uh, at the time at Genk, and that was around 1,800 euros a month. So that's uh, not even uh, what they pay normal people in life. So don't have to expect big pro- contracts, but usually they promise like, player you get like 10% of the transfer fee when you move later it's with promises as that like that that they try to keep players for a longer time you get a percentage on this or to the agent you get a percentage of 10% on uh, on the fee too that's the way they try to cover not with high wages if you have high wages like for uh, let's say between 500 and 1 million euros a year you always you already ha- uh, have to have played in the league and proven something they're not giving that to uh, to youngsters for granted like you haven't played anything you haven't proven anything yet here we throw money at you at you that's not the way it works in belgium so it's it's an incentive driven model if you if you prove yourself and a top european club wants to buy you or another belgian club wants to buy you you'll get a percentage of the transfer fee so that, yeah it's it, it's with that that they, yeah of course if like for instance a good talent leaves for 20 million uh pounds 10 percent on the transfer fee is, is yeah that's two million it's a lot of money too and then you catch up on the wages you could have earned for instance at let's say a club like Chelsea or Manchester United so you get that back later when you make that move and it, in a way it makes them hungry too if they get a percentage on the, on the transfer fee I, I remember that for instance with Tubi Thibaut Courtois it was the case too like he moved from 9, nine million to Chelsea um, 8 years ago and he got like or his family got one about one million of the fee too. There was a huge discussion at that point about about how much they would get of the fee, but in the end they got it. So uh, that's the way Belgian clubs try to solve it. So uh, it's intelligent. You you make the players hungry to succeed instead of giving them the opportunity to just step away and think they made it without ever playing professional football. You mentioned Dries Mertens there. Uh, you mentioned Chelsea. Tell us how close Mertens came to joining Chelsea in the January window. Well, let's say it wasn't close. Um, <laughs> the answer, the answer of uh, uh, Aurelio De Laurentiis, uh, Napoli's president, was quite clear. It's a no. I don't have to sell Dries Mertens at this moment. I can't make it to the fans. Maybe I don't even need the money. Although his contract is running out, I'd rather keep him and and. Uh, let us win the the the, the Europa League or let, or the Champions League or whatever. Or he lets us win the uh, get a, a Champions League ticket in the Serie A. Even though that's a difficult task, he will always give us something. And money won't won't repay the loss we get by losing him because he will always score goals. So um, Chelsea inquired. Frank Lampard really wanted him. There were a few phone calls, there were some meetings but in the end there was a straight no from Napoli and uh, I don't even think at a certain point some agent even mentioned that 
Napoli was asking crazy money like 40 million pounds something Chelsea would never never pay for a player uh, that only has like five months left on his contract so um, no they never came close it was just one that they tried but knew was impossible uh, to happen the information I got from Italy was that um, De Laurentiis was put under pressure by Gattuso, his, his new manager, to retain Mertens because he felt he was important to the team. We were yeah, yeah, yeah. That, Mert- that, was, that was definitely the case too. That kept his, that it was a promise to Gattuso too that he wouldn't let him go. So, yeah. And we we were hearing that Mertens wanted to remain and become the club's record scorer. Yeah. Um, was that? Was, yeah, was he ever was properly true. interested in moving to Chelsea, or was was he happy to to go along with this setup? But he's he's very happy in Napoli. Like he loves life over there. He's the fans' favorite, and he had that record on his mind. That was always on his mind, even before. Um, yeah, the, he got injured at a bad time too. Beginning of January. I think they had like four or five games before the end of the transfer window. If he'd scored that three goals that he needed or four, then he could have made the transfer at the end of the window. So uh, that record was always in his mind. He wanted to get that record and he didn't want to push for a move either. So he wasn't pushing for it. He wasn't actively searching. It was an interesting uh, offer, uh, phone call from Chelsea. They they, I think they, they wanted him because he could play on four positions. He could play as a striker, as a false nine. He can play on the left. He can play on the right. He can play as a number 10. He's quite versatile. So um, him and his uh, missus, they have always liked London. So if there was a chance to move to London, they they wouldn't reject that. But everything had to be perfect and everybody had to agree to. And in this case... There were no even no advanced negotiations, so and he didn't push for it. In the end, he wasn't disappointed either that it did it didn't go through. Um, he will just now get to grab the record he scored. Uh, he scored on Monday, so only needs two goals to uh, to get on the same kind of goals as 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 uh, Marek Hamsik. So um, he's close, and he will just have a free transfer in the in the uh, during the summer. So. He will get that fee that Chelsea wanted to pay, let's say, eight or nine million euros that they wanted to spend on him. He can back that now himself as a signing on fee. Or what Napoli still believe is that they can convince him to sign a new deal. But that's something uh, we'll have to see because Napoli are in my eyes also in a bit of the end of a cycle. Um, they've had lots of troubles earlier in this season. Everybody knows about them. So I have to see if he's really keen to sign that new deal. So, But he will have loads of options as a free agent. Uh, he's 32 years old, but he has the advantage that he only started as a pro quite late. So he has still three, four more years in him, I think, physically. He's not physically worn out. So do you, do you see him as being an option for Chelsea again in the summer? Do you see Lampard coming in for him again? Or will Napoli use some kind of Gomorrah-style technique to get him to sign a new contract and commit the rest of his career to the I, Italian I, club? I don't know what will happen with at Napoli. Napoli is a really unpredictable club with yeah, a weird entourage too. So I don't know what will happen. <laughs> but... Um, Yes, Chelsea will definitely be interested again in the in the summer, I think, because he will be a good 
backup option for what they have. And I think there will be other clubs interested too. Let's say that the likes of Arsenal, the likes of uh, Manchester United, they can use somebody like that. And Mertens is also a really positive character in a squad. He's like a guy who keeps it going. And yeah, it's a good guy to have in the group. So uh, I'm not making, uh, I'm not his agent uh, advertising him. Come on, tell him, I sign him on, sign him on. But... He's a good character, definitely a good character to have in the squad. And he's very hungry and he's always playing with lots of energy. He's not the most consistent player, but you can always get, he always gives the best for a team and in, uh, off and on and off the pitch. So he's really liked by, his te- by all of his teammates. So that might, uh, that might be a good uh, selling point for his agent too. So, Christoph, you're you're very close to Chelsea. You've covered the team for a number of years. You've used your um, Maruan elbow to get some great stories out of Chelsea. What's your What's your view of Frank Lampard's Chelsea, and what's your view of what went on in that January window? And Frank Lampard coming out um, on Friday and pretty much making his uh, his uh, unhappiness about. The, the lack of reinforcements and the decisions the club had made over reinforcements public in his press conference before the Leicester game. Well, I wasn't surprised by it because that he did that because he really stressed uh, the last few weeks that he wanted to to have another striker. That was something he wanted. He wanted somebody in, and that's a problem that isn't resolved. He. Yeah, you feel that he doesn't believe in Michi Bacuai. You feel that he doesn't rate Olivier Giroud. Otherwise, he would have been in the squad. He wants something different in the squad. And he's not been helped by, by, by injuries. By, I think losing Pulisic for a few weeks hasn't helped them either because he gave them something different, like a spark, like not on a regular basis like you Eden Hazard used to do but that's something they are lacking at the moment in their squad that's the spark that Eden Hazard gave them like that one action that could decide a game that's what they're lacking I still see some uh, difficulties in midfield they have Kepa who lost completely focus it's a bit of a team that let's call it the transition period Uh, youngsters who started off well but then starting to get tired not uh, getting called out to uh, opponents who don't really know him, st- uh, know, knew them before, start to know them now. So it's just a team that needs a little bit of patience. And I can understand why uh, why Lampard wanted an experienced, stri- an experienced striker to help Tammy Abram, for instance, to get him into positions one aside him who can help him, who can uh, guide him to become a better player. But with his experience and his experience with the club, he's been there for for more than ten years. Lampard, he should have known that Chelsea are slow in their business and that January is a particularly difficult uh, difficult window to get the striker you want. And I made I made I did the exercise myself. I checked uh, a lot of strikers who's available, who wants to come to a team that is battling for a Champions League ticket and who's good enough for Chelsea there were not a lot of strikers available to be fair or they were or, or they were of the category that still have to prove themselves on a higher level uh, or just 
don't fancy Chelsea, Chelsea anymore because Chelsea is not Liverpool. Chelsea before, in the period when they were really successful between 2003 and between 2013, added hazard side for them because they won the Champions League and they have won loads of titles. Now they have a little bit the reputation of going up and down, not being so consistent anymore. Liverpool is the team that youngsters and young players are now looking up to. You have Manchester City. You have more competition to sign uh, uh, for to sign players too, and they don't pay the top money anymore either. So it's more difficult for them, and they have to be more wise. And they, I think. First at Chelsea, they basically wanted young players in. Like that was the strategy before they went into this window. We want a young defender, we want a young midfielder, we want a young striker. But then suddenly a manager realizes that with all those youngsters, although there were at a certain point only two or three youngsters in the team too, he couldn't make it. And then they make another, then the manager insists on more experience. They go for experience, but it's too late. It's like, they still trying to find a vision between results and implementing youngsters. So Frank Lampard, he's in his second season as a manager and he's managed to get himself one of the uh, blue chip jobs in English football. Um, he's clearly in charge of a team that are entertaining to watch and create a lot of chances, but defensively very suspect. Um, I see errors he's making in, in setting out his defence, particularly at set pieces. What's your view of his debut as a Premier League manager? Because um, I have, have people saying, look, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is getting a lot of criticism at the moment. Why isn't Frank Lampard getting it? Because he's making lots of errors. He's losing lots of games. Do you think he does, merits more criticism or do you see a manager with, who's doing a good job in the first place but also has the potential to become a lot better? But I think he still needs time like his youngsters still need time. He still he will still make mistakes. That's what uh, young managers do. Like at the beginning, they were called out. And Mourinho even called them out in a press conference. He saw what the problems were. I mean, not in a press conference as a pundit. He, 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 he pointed out where the flaws in that game were. He still has to learn it, but you learn it the hard way, I think. I think he shows... I, I really like his press conference. It's really honest in a way, but honesty can turn against you too when you're too honest and too brutal. It's what Jose Mourinho has found out during his career too. Like um, being too honest in press conferences, really saying what you're thinking and really emphasizing, I want this, I want that. Club managed, uh, club uh, directors not, don't always like that. So, but. He needs time. I, I, I sometimes think that he makes the, he, like with Kepa, he showed like, kept dropping Kepa, he showed like balls. Like I'm, uh, I dropped the most expensive goalkeeper in history because he's not performing. That's quite early. Uh, that's quite early in his career. I think like I'm going to show the goalkeeper that he needs to focus more. It's good that he makes those decisions, but still, if he gets this team to fourth place this season, I think he will have done a good job because it's an inconsistent team. It's, I'm not going to say a very young team, but it's a really unbalanced core and it lacks some things. And if he gets them to fourth place, it will be a victory for them. And I think Chelsea will be happy. And then we'll see once he gets a window 
where he can buy the players he wants, or he can basically <laughs> at Chelsea he can advise uh, which players they are going to sign, and he gets them which is not usually the Chelsea way to get all the players that a manager wants. It's been a long time that that happened, that a manager got all the players and all the positions he wanted at Chelsea. Uh, we'll see what he has. But that is something. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been so entertaining to watch. They wouldn't have been at fourth place, I think, if there was not something in the manager that was good. He's worked on the lots of good managers too, and I think he picked up loads of things from different managers. And, Frank has been always set as a player, was very intelligent. Um, and intelligent people, usually this intelligent people like him, some managers said we could see a, man, a future manager in him. And that's what you're seeing now. But still, Chelsea will always be a club where they expect results from him. And I hope they give him the time. I hope he develops as a manager. But still, he has to work on some things. I agree. One of the things that's um, obvious about Frank Lampard is his intelligence. And I think one of the other things that's important here is he chose to go into management when he could have had a very lucrative career um, as a pundit, as a lot of his ex-England yeah. teammates have chosen to go. And so he, he seems to have that desire to be involved and to, to win again, which which I think is fundamental to management and something that in the modern game it's changed because these players have the option just to step away and have an easy life where where he wants to to work again. What one of the other strikers Chelsea looked at in January was Adinson Cavani. Um, in fact, we had the injured um, Tammy Abraham uh, talking to the press and saying that Cavani was would have been someone I could have learned from and stolen his ideas to add to my own, which is quite an interesting comment from a from a first choice striker. Um, Cavani actually wanted to go to Atletico and there, there's been a you know big kind of public conflict between the Atletico president and Cavani's brother and agent over that and he ended up staying at Paris Saint-Germain. Atletico then went and signed Yannick Carrasco, uh, a Belgian international who Crystal Palace had been trying to bring in. How did that come about? That was, it was a very uh, late acquisition that Atletico made there to bring a player they used to have um, back to the club. I was surprised by that move too because uh, when Carrasco left two years ago, there were the stories that him and Simeone didn't get on anymore, that they had some, that they had fallen out over some things. And Carrasco is not the most difficult character, uh, but he's not the most easiest character because he's a winner and he hates losing. And when things are not going his way, he he he. he uh, he sometimes throws the toys out of the pram, like what happened at, at uh, in China, where he was never happy. And after the first minute, said, "I want to leave. I'm not happy here. I want to go back to Europe." And finally, after one and a half year of moaning, he got his move. But I didn't expect him to go back to Atletico. To be fair, but there are some coincidences, funny coincidences in that deal. He was in talks with Crystal Palace. Crystal Palace had uh, talked to him directly. They thought. He was interested, but it never materialized in the end. They were talking about alone. Palace were in touch with Rafa Benitez and with Talian, but they couldn't get the deal over the line. And then suddenly, in the last two, three days of the window, suddenly Atletico popped up. Um, I don't know if, 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 if it's a coincidence or not, but uh, when, um, when Atletico signed Carrasco, they signed... Uh, 
they signed a, a, a mortgage deal with a, with a Canadian uh, pension funds or something linked to the Canadian pension funds. Um, and they sold his transfer uh, or part of his transfer rights to that Canadian uh, pension funds. Then in 2017, when he was, uh, when he was sold to Dalian, it was just before Dalian sold their part of their shares in Atletico. They kept the naming rights for the stadium and the training center, but they, they, uh, they pulled out of uh, their investment out of Atletico. They bought a club in China, Dalian Yifang, and immediately they buy two players of, uh, of uh, Atletico for more than 30 million euros. So Carrasco cost 30 million. So they moved, both moved there, him and Nico Gaetan, the all-time Manchester United target, <laughs> when they're now signing for, for Lille. And then you have Carrasco being stuck there. Lots of clubs uh, over the years trying to sign him. Arsenal had a go to get him on loan. They didn't succeed, for instance. Uh, it was last Janu- January. Then he tried to, to push for a move in the summer. It didn't work. The Chinese didn't want to let him go. And then now, uh, at the beginning of uh, January, uh, Wanda, owners of Dalian, say, we sell the club. We pull out all our investments. And then you see Atletico suddenly investing in a team in a Canadian league. And then suddenly Carrasco signing for them again. So you're going to, with all those uh, football league stories and all those uh, stories about hidden TPOs, you start questioning things and you see things like, I mean, is, is it a coincidence? It can be just a coincidence because at Atletico, they say they have been in touch with his agent for a while. His agent... Uh, is pretty close to Atletico's uh, board, and he just gave them an extra option when they couldn't sign Cavani anymore. He just offered them and kept on knocking on the door, please take him back. And then Diego Simeone made a phone call to him and felt that Carrasco, who's, got, who's become older over those two years, more mature, was very hungry, and he really said, I want to prove myself. And um, Carrasco, over the last two months, he trained with his own physio, he uh, trained extra. There was the winter, uh, there was the the break in the Chinese league that finished uh, at the end of November. In those two months, he worked hard on his condition with a personal coach. So he showed hunger and he showed clubs that he wanted to uh, he wanted to play for them again. And there, there must be a reason why he got his chance uh, against Real Madrid in his uh, first game already. He played 20 minutes. That he. Uh, his physical test must have been good, otherwise you don't get the chance to play. So, uh, for Roberto Martinez, is very happy with uh, with Carrasco uh, going back to uh, going back to a European club because he still rates him and he wants him uh, at a good level for the Belgian team. And in China, although the league standard it's not that bad, he was basically wasting his time. Talking of unexpected. Sort of last-minute deals from China. I have to ask your view of um, Uli Gunnar Solskjaer turning to Idian Igalo as his uh, cultural reboot striker. Um, Igalo was given a, his first interview and said that he told his agent to um, to take a pay cut to make the deal happen. But it seems to have drawn attention to the the links between Solskjaer's agent Jim Solbakken and um, Igalo's agent, and also to the the number of 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 uh, Solbakken clients that Solskjaer's clubs have signed down the years. 
What, what was your view of this transfer? And do you think it's um, something that might have uh, medium-term repercussions for the Norwegian in, in, in terms of the, the kind of murky history that's been uh, exposed in doing that deal? Well, uh, I don't think like a lot of people have paid attention to to, to all the deals behind the uh, the soul back in history. It's only uh, it's only like um, uh, bad journalists as we are that are going for those stories. <laughs> and I don't think real people, uh, real football people, are interested in that. I think if it doesn't work out for Solskjaer, they will point at that at those dubious deals because they seem to happen if you read all those stories in Norway they've happened before is it a coincidence that they get linked to two players who his agent had a connection to before with Joshua came from Bournemouth and Idiot Igalo no but in a way it's also logical that you go to players that you know what it, it, when you're in a panic uh, when you're in full panic like they were at, uh, at, at Manchester United so um, yeah um, I don't know if uh, if the if most of the fans have paid attention to that. Idion Igalo was a strange signing, but I can understand it in a way. If you're looking for a backup striker, wouldn't who isn't going to play a complain when uh, when uh, when Rashford is back, then he's an he's a good option, and he's a boyhood Manchester United fan, so he will always. Give that extra shift. I think if you play for the team you love, if you fulfil your dream, you you want to go the extra mile. I think it's definitely not a long-term solution. But were they really looking for that? I don't think so. And there were not a lot of options available for them. And I don't see many strikers in the continent at this moment really jumping for joy to join Manchester United because they are on a team in transition too. And everybody knows their stories of, of, of transfer that haven't that worked out well over the last few years and of potential that isn't fulfilled at that club. So, yeah, let's see what happens. But, yeah, I think if Igalo scores a few goals, it will be good for them. Yes, I, I think it's difficult because they were looking for a long-term option and they kept saying they were looking for a long-term option and obviously they tried to get Erling Haaland and that fell through and their story was that they wouldn't do it because of Mino Raiola's conditions. But ultimately, they've got themselves in a position where Solskjaer's made a decision um, to sideline Romelu Lukaku uh, and then allow Romelu Lukaku to leave in the summer. And uh, and they have Idian Ogallo as his effective replacement, the first um, centre-forward they've signed since allowing Lukaku to go. So tell us how Lukaku has got on um, since getting out of Manchester United and and being reunited with a, with a manager who um, actually valued him and wanted to, to build his attack around him. Well, uh, Lukaku is doing really well, as everybody knows. He's scoring goals. For him, it's basically, as I told before, about feeling happy, feeling appreciated. And when he's feeling appreciated, you get the best out of him. Uh, Conte made him his most important signing. That's what he never felt at Manchester United, that he was important. And yeah, that's what you see at Inter now. He's performing well. He's enjoying life. He's enjoying the city. He's enjoying the league. He's scoring goals. He feels appreciated and loved. And, that's what he wanted and it's 
it's something he would never have had at, at Manchester United where he would have been backup choice or first striker. There always would have been criticism in Italy. There isn't a lot of criticism on him. Maybe that will come when he's ha- having a period where he's not scoring a lot of goals, a period where where not everything is going well for him, for instance. But he started off so well that if they... To be fair, I don't see them become champions because Juve have a have a have a have a, have a pretty strong score and I still rate them higher than them at the moment. But if he may he if Inter become uh, become champions, he will have played an important goal, uh, role because if uh, he's uh, he's given them like I think at least 13, 14 points at this at this point with important late goals in games. Um, yeah, he's getting on, and it was. It was the move of his life to push for that move at Manchester United because he felt that Solskjaer didn't rate him, rate him as the first striker and wanted to play him on the wing and saw Rashford as his as his uh, deep striker. It's a it's a shame for for it's a shame for Manchester United that he isn't there anymore. But I don't think it would have worked with Lukaku. It's it's the easy it's the easy one to say yeah uh, with Lukaku we have, would have scored more goals. Of course, Lukaku has always been good every season for at least 15 to 20 goals. But if he had stayed, stayed, you wouldn't have had the happy, happy Lukaku. He's now the free mind, the free bird that's scoring goals for Inter. So let, let's, do a, let's do a thought experiment, Christoph. If, yeah. if Lukaku hadn't been relegated from the team, relegated to the sidelines after what had been a difficult season for him for personal reasons and for health reasons, which you've explained in this podcast before. And if Solskjaer had had kept him in his side in the second half of last season, Rashford decided he wanted to play off the left wing after the idea being you you make him centre forward, but he's he's now his preference to play off the left wing. Do you think Lukaku could not have fit into the Solskjaer system? Or do you think the way Solskjaer has set his team up to play, Lukaku would have been fine in that system. You know, there's this idea that he's a very slow player and he can't can't play um, quick counter-attacking football. But I'm not sure that fits my my image of him playing for Belgium, for example. But you you have a better view of this because you you watch more of Romelu Lukaku than I've ever done. I still it could have worked in Solskjaer's system, but I think. There at that point, too many things. Even if they had had stayed and they, he had pushed Rashford to the side, I think too much things have happened behind the scenes, and mm-hmm. um, and the criticism, the constant criticism, had okay. been there. I don't think he, it it would have worked because there must have been a reason that he chose for Federico Pastorella, his agent, already in uh, in November. Uh, in October, November, when Jose Mourinho was still there. So he was already thinking about a move at that point, I think, and saw that Manchester United wasn't the right choice for him. I, I, I still, I, if, you, if you want to, to rewind the clock and go back, you should go back to the summer of 2000, uh, of 2000, was it the summer of 2006? Yeah, it was uh, 17, 2017, when he had the choice between Chelsea and Conte and between mm-hmm. Manchester United and Mourinho. And when Mourinho convinced him to join uh, Man United, at that point, he should have told his agent, 
go to Chelsea and make that deal. I only want Chelsea because that's the team I really want to go to. That was what he was thinking for months, but only the last months he changed his mind because Man United were making offers, because Raiola was using his influence, and because of Mourinho made that one phone call in which he really convinced him. And at that point, Conte was struggling at Chelsea to get what he wanted uh, when he when he called Lukaku just a few days before he signed uh, for Manchester United, he was surprised that Chelsea still hadn't made the deal with him. Oh, we don't have a deal. How is this possible? And Conte made a frustrated uh, impression on Lukaku at that point. And I think that had an influence on him too. Although he often says that, uh, always, he often says that going back to Chelsea could have been a mistake too because he had failed there before and there would, would have still that impression of yeah the failed one but working with Conte would have made him a better player already at that point I think because they're made for each other I'm told by other players who've worked with Conte and they say Romelu and, uh, and Conte they're made for each other they're so mad about football they're so <laughs> mad about watching videos and tactics and stuff like that so they are really good marriage and uh, Conte knows how to play with Lukaku too because Lukaku is sometimes the player that needs encouragement or needs to be set when things are, when he's not performing well. Lukaku has told that story before on uh, on a on a podcast or in an interview when Conte told him after after a game, "You were just sheepy. <laughs> I'm gonna beep it out. You're just not good and." That's what was he needed. And in the game after he scored, sometimes he needs that negative motivation that tell him he's very bad so he can get energy out of that negativeness, uh, out of that negativity. So, yeah. So, so you lost your, um, your, your journalistic role model in, in Marouane Fellaini from Manchester United and you lost Lukaku, but you've still got one Belgian-born player there, um, Andreas Pereira who I just noticed has, has made more Premier League appearances for Manchester United this season than everyone but five players in their squad, which is quite remarkable. What's, what's the view of Andreas in Belgium? Well, I, uh, it's quite funny. I've known the young Andreas, uh, the really young one, because the first interview that I ever did, I was still on an internship at Belgium's biggest football magazine, was with his dad at home. The first big interview on my own was interviewing his dad, Marcos, who was dad back then, a player of Sintrada. Oh, yeah, one of the relegation candidates in the Belgian league. He had had a difficult career with two serious injuries, but he made his way, way up from a small league team into the, the Belgian first division. And it was quite an inspiring story, uh, to be fair. And that's why I saw really small Andreas. I don't know which age he, he had that, but by that point that he was uh, kicking some balls in the garden. So that was the little Andreas. <laughs> he was he was part of the Belgian generation of, of 96, along with Musonda, the ones that everybody was shouting out, those guys are going to make it. This is our best generation ever. And of those guys, to be fair, Pereira has made so far the best career. I, I'm not going to say he's biggest talent that Belgium has ever had but he he has yeah he has the determination 
that's something he got from his dad. He's seen how his dad built up his career, determination, that's something he has. And that's how he compensates a lack of skills. And that's the reason I think managers rate him and play him sometimes because he's determined. I'm, I, I don't know if he's up to Manchester United's level. He gets lots of criticism. But there must be a reason why managers keep on playing them. They have had like injuries in midfield, of course. But um, yeah, he's uh, he's. Uh, but he's. I don't know how I have to. Uh, I have to look at his performances. It's it's like one of those players that you would never say he's very bad, but he's never. You never see him shining either. It's like one of those. In between us, like uh, good, uh, decent, sometimes, yeah, bad. Uh, yeah, I don't get a huge impression of it. I, I, I still know that at a certain point at Belgium, they were still calling him and still considering him to be called up for the Belgian national team, although he'd already chosen for, for Brazil to play for Brazil under 23. And he played one friendly game, I think, for the... Brazil uh, national team already got called up for a friendly game. He's played, he, he's played one game for Brazil. Yeah, yeah, but he can still play for Belgium. But in Belgium, since he's opted for, for Brazil, we don't really consider him as a Belgian anymore. It's, we are quite opportunistic in that once they chose from an, for another country, he's not Belgian anymore. If only Scotland could be so fussy about our players. But but the question I have for you, Christoph, is when you were doing that first interview of your journalist career and you saw the young Andreas kicking a ball around in the back garden, did you get Andreas's phone number just in case? Uh, no, you don't ask uh, kids <laughs> for their phone number. Otherwise, you get very suspicious and you get it's the favorite word that they use on Twitter for some people. Then you will build golf and. and <laughs> and then we put three stars behind it. No, I didn't ask for his number, and uh, I still have his dad's number. So uh, still go. You have, the, you have that contact. Yeah, I still have that contact. I don't really know if he still knows me. Is that so? Uh, he will, If I tell him that I did that interview, we will still remember the interview. But over the years, we lost contact. Also because he wasn't that important for. For, for my newspaper for for Belgian uh, for Belgian uh, for Belgian media so we lost a little bit of interest although if I text his dad and ask him something he will still answer a club that went past Manchester United at the weekend with their yeah, somewhat fortunate victory over Manchester City's Tottenham Hotspur um, the Belgium interest there Jan Vertonghen uh, 32 out of contract in the summer subbed off after 54 minutes of the of Tottenham's FA Cup win over Southampton on Wednesday night and uh, and didn't look particularly happy about it. What do you think the future holds for Vertonghen? Well, it's still unclear. I'm told that the door for Spurs is still open. Jan is still super happy in, in London. His family and him have built out their lives over here. So London still has that effect on them for yeah, we would like to stay, but I think there's, yeah, at the moment there are no talks going on, and it's often worrying. Although you have seen players over the past, like John Terry, going in the last few months of their contract and then still signing you. I, I think he's still all hoping to get that new deal or to get something, but 
He's at a point in his career where players usually want like two years or three years. That's the way players uh, think because they still think they're fit enough to uh, perform at the highest level. Still have it in them. They want high wages. They want that security. And clubs, definitely not Spurs and the Chelsea of of this world, are really eager to give long-term contracts to players of 30-plus. And Jan Vertonghen turns 30 three later this year so it is always a risk to give long-term contracts to players like that although i'm told that Vertonghen is a super professional he looks after his body he's really determined um will never disappoint you in that way he might disappoint you on the pitch because he's getting older he's getting a little slower he's less mobile and I think at this point he's still searching his way in, in, into the new way of working with, with, with Mourinho. The way they work, they're changing a lot at the back and that hasn't helped him either. I think he's not having his best season. He played first on the left and he moved to the central position again. And then you had that game on, on Wednesday. I've, I've never seen him that disappointed, to be fair. It was sulking the end. But it, it, to be fair, it's not a surprise to people who've worked with him because... They always said that his body language, it has come back in, uh, in earlier stories in England too, that his body language never lies. When he's disappointed, he can't hide it. It's like an open book and he was pretty disappointed. And I'm told that it was basically he was disappointed about his game, about the way that Spurs mm-hmm. were performing more than it was the disappointment about the substitution. And he has that. Jan Vertonghen is a perfectionist has always been a perfectionist he wants 10 out of 10 and if he doesn't get that 10 he take he 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 pulls himself down to a lower level and maybe he's uh, he wants to raise the bar too high for him maybe he has to go for a 7 that an 8 can be good enough to and not that 10 out of 10 and i think that's where his main frustrations are I'm told that his, uh, his soaking had nothing to do with the contract because players usually are not thinking about contracts and futures when they are playing a game. They are thinking about their own game and getting the best out of it. And he's still like uh, really, really uh, connected to Spurs. He loves Spurs. He likes it. He's, he, he likes to jo- make jokes on, on social media. He likes to make jokes uh, about, uh, about the about the other teams, about the, the, the rivals too. So he has that connection with Spurs. Um, yeah, I think yeah, we'll have to see what happens at the end of, uh, of the women's all over the coming month. But I'm told that the do- door for Spurs, although there are no negotiations at the moment, is still open and he's still very respectful towards the club. The club is very respectful towards him for what he's done at, uh, in the eight year seasons. He's now, he, he's been there now so I don't think that that is a huge huge issue it was just the disappointment of the game that really put him into that soaking mode so what you're saying is um, don't expect him to join Arsenal and freedom of contract move in the summer but don't never say never in football but (laughs) he uh, I don't think he's up for that uh, that there's still a lot of other clubs in, in London but he's been He's been uh, he's been mocking uh, Arsenal already once on uh, on 
on Twitter, I think, or something like that. It will come as a boomerang. There will be always people finding those tweets where he was mocking Arsenal or quotes where he said something about Arsenal. It will come back as a boomerang. So I don't think he will do that. I think he will have other options that's interested him. Definitely for a player with that experience, it's the typical player that Italian clubs are usually interested in. Uh, 32, mm. 33 years old, available for 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 cheap. That's the in the good move for a player like that, like they've done with Godin. Napoli are searching for a centre back, although deny they are interested in uh, in Vertonghen. IS Roma always looking for centre backs too, so. It might he might go to Italy too, but he still thinks that he's up for a high level football, and he uh, he wants to prove that he's still very hungry. He wants to play till the age of forty if he can, and yeah, he still has that motivation. I think he has to show that to Mourinho too. Although Jose's remarks were quite, uh, he tried to. Uh, he, tr- he tried to uh, to get the fire out of it by saying he's a super professional. He's very intelligent. I don't need to talk about uh, uh, with him about that. I think he already started to know Vertonghen and his body language. Pochettino has mentioned it before that his body language has never been uh, top top. He, Vertonghen, when he's really top, he has to show that he's strong and show his qualities and not dragging down. And Pochettino worked. With with uh, with that, he mentioned it to him uh, that he once saw a video of him in the in the I think it was the tunnel before a game of uh, before the game against Liverpool where his body language was not top. Uh, but Pochettino didn't like it, and he mentioned that in one of his first meetings with Fatonga that he had to work on his body language not to show, let's say, disinterest that it can create. Uh, a bad perception that sometimes in football you have to act and not show what you're thinking because otherwise you create storms, stuff like that. Um, yeah, that's something they worked on. But in a moment of huge disappointment, you always become yourself again. You go to your inner self. And Vertonghen, yeah, sometimes you can sulk. And that's what we saw. So you mentioned that um, Josie Mourinho has been changing things defensively and Jan Vertonghen's one of the players who's getting used to that what's the general feedback you're receiving on Mourinho's um, leadership of of Tottenham and how he's changed things since taking over from Pochettino? Well, I hear I hear some good things from uh, from 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 some players. Uh, I haven't heard bad things like uh, there were a few weeks ago that Mourinho hadn't changed anything. But I think that came from a player that was unhappy. It's what's to uh, uh, how <laughs> players moved. It was been moved on. That's what you usually get, I think. Uh, uh, yeah, I have heard good things. Uh, motivating, motivating players. He's sending loads of text messages, but that's difficult, typical Mourinho too. He's been happy. He hasn't been really in a sulky mode either on training uh, on the training guy. He knows he still has to has a lot of work and that's what you see in that team they haven't found the balance yet um, they are trying to change things He's, I, what I always what I notice in the games is that one of his his main assistants is really involved in the coaching in defensive coaching so they're definitely working on tactics and tactical things and he looks after it too so Mourinho is using new new insights from younger people because it's yeah, he changed his whole backroom stuff. Basically, he didn't he didn't take the regulars with him because they were not available. Or 
because he wanted something else. So you see other things that still haven't seen a real Mourinho team yet, but I think we will only see that after he's had a pre-season with them. So um, I'll do it. I'm very happy with Mourinho, to be fair. Um, that's why he signed a new deal too, I think. He signed a new deal because he's very happy with Mourinho or he's very happy with Mourinho because Mourinho got him a new deal? Well, I think the change of manager changed a lot for him. Um, at a certain point, he didn't want to sign a new deal. Um, yeah, it looked like he was leaving, but uh, yeah, you never know when a manager leaves and suddenly you get a manager that tried to get you to Chelsea. He was... In 2014 or 2015, he was on on their list, and there was some contact and tried to get you to Manchester United. You feel that belief, and then the manager, of course, said to the club that one of the backbones for my defense is this guy. Please give him a new deal and pay him what he wants. That helps, of course. You feel the confidence. You get the money, and yeah, you have to see the total package uh, with. Uh, with Alderweireld too. Alderweireld is quite the loyal guy who doesn't want to move, although if Pochettino had stayed on, he probably would have moved on because he didn't feel what he felt that Mourinho, what Mourinho had for him. That he's, he's, he, him and his family are very happy in London too and they're expecting a, a second child uh, somewhere this year. That, that also, that's familial stability that, that plays too in the back of his mind. Alderweireld as a kid, he was always homesick when he moved to Amsterdam. He wasn't happy over there. He was he was homesick. And by being in London, he's close to his hometown Antwerp. It's only one hour on a plane, two hours on a train. So he stays close to home. And that was important for him to staying close to home, not moving. China was never an option for him because he wouldn't have liked it over there. Maybe Italy, it would have worked for him. Maybe Spain. And then that offer came and it was... An offer he couldn't reject. He he said that he could earn more money somewhere else if it if he'd gone on a free, of course. Like I said, he would have got a huge signing on fee. But he says the total package was just fine. It was the manager. It was the money they offered. It was the confidence they showed. It it was the it was also the he just always liked it at Spurs. He loved the. He loved, he loved the new stadium, for instance. He loved the way the fans have always treated him. They, although he didn't want to uh, sign that new deal, they always kept him, insisting him to sign a new deal. And not, he was not considered as a Judas because he didn't want to sign that new deal. So um, that's what he played in his mind. So there were lots of reasons. But I think change of manager and the manager pushing for a deal played the most important role. It's Friday's podcast and we, we finish off with a quick fire round um, and we're going to make it very quick, this one. So we, we'd like to know whether your beloved Belgium national team, led by um, the man Barcelona and Arsenal and everyone in world football tried to sign, apparently, Roberto Martinez, are about to emulate Portugal and, uh, and use this summer's European Championship to win a major trophy for the first time. And if you don't think they are, how far do you think they'll get in the tournament? Well, I still have doubts that they will win it. Um, we still lack something. And yeah, I'm, I'm quite pessimistic. Uh, it's, it, I thought uh, Russia was already now or never with our aging defense. 
Um, I want to see it if uh, if company gets injured again or hasn't had a huge uh, a long season at the highest level like he's having now with Vertonghen not having a lot of games we still have a goalkeeper that's performing at his best ever I think at, at Real Madrid so you already have that but still it will depend on the draw and who we're meeting uh, during the tournament I think so if we if we get to France before the semi-finals, it might be difficult, I think. Then I think it's team we struggle with. They're smart. And like Didier Deschamps is really a smart manager. And they have abundance of, of choices. The abundance we don't have anymore, I think, uh, in choices. Definitely not at the back. In midfield and at the wings, we're fine. A striker too, but only our first striker because... All our backup strikers are on the bench and not scoring goals for a year like uh, Ben Teke. So we're struggling in attacking, having more options there. So I'm not sure, but you never know if, if some some countries have loads of injuries, missing a lot of players. We might have a good shot, but it really is now or never. Really the last chance for this generation, I think. Uh, I don't see us doing in Italy, uh, in Qatar, winning, winning the... Winning the uh, the World Cup with a 31 or 32 year, years old, Eden Hazard, for instance. Uh, he will very... be, to be to be fair, Eden Hazard. It's all fine. What's happening now with him for the Euros? He will be fit and he will be at his best. He will be sharp. That's that's the only good thing. And with Kevin De Bruyne, I have the I have the opposite. He will be. He will be maybe burned out because they still play a lot and he still gives everything. He might be burned out when the Euros begin. So a lot will depend on our defence, on Courtois and on the Hazard, De Bruyne and Lukaku. Lukaku will have played loads of games too by that point. See if he will be still that scoring striker when he gets tired. But they're all very motivated for those Euros. We might still be lacking uh, experience in the backroom staff that we have at the uh, World Cup with losing Thierry Henry and even losing Graeme Jones at, at that point. Sean Maloney is now uh, Roberto Martinez's first assistant. And he wanted the second assistant and there's still no different assistant. So we might miss those uh, insights. But all of those players, too, they've worked on the great managers. Maybe they m- might use some of that experience to... Most of them started uh, their managing batches too with the Belgian uh, Federation. So maybe uh, maybe uh, Martinez is turning them all into coaches before the World Cup so he can use them as assistants too with their insights. So, so Ed Nazard is motivated to turn this into his tournament because I think you know, we saw Thibaut Courtois at the World Cup very, very focused and, and having an incredible tournament and securing his move to Real Madrid. Hazard, there's always been that question of, of when, when he wants to do it is when he's exceptional. But you, you expect him to, to, to make he this was, a special tournament I, I, I for himself. I think he already had that, uh, that motivation at the World Cup. The first time that was before, that he told, before the tournament, he told me, I want to do something. And that's what you saw. He was the killer at the World Cup. He was, a, I think, our best player at the World Cup along Courtois. So he already had that focus by them. So, and I think they will even have it more now because they feel still a little bit hurt after what happened uh, in that semi-final in France. They're still talking about that. 
they still feel they still have those revenge feelings a little bit i think and that's good that's good that they're hurt they had a huge disappointment and usually from disappointments comes motivation they draw motivation out of the game so we'll have to see but hazard will definitely be up for it kevin the browner will be up for it um even Vincent Kompany will be will be up for it. They all want to play that final in Wembley, and I think they know they all know the date of that final on the 12th of July. I think it is. They know it. They have put it in their agenda. This has to be our moment. Thank you, Christoph. Great insight as ever. Um, that's it for this week's transfer window. A week in which the Thinking Fans podcast has examined the tangled Norwegian roots of Manchester United's acquisition of a 30-year-old striker based in China, broken news of Manchester City's interest in Brazilian centre-back Gabriel, and much, much more. You can continue the debate on Twitter with me, at Duncan Castles, and with Christoph, who is at HLN in England, although I believe you're considering changing that handle to unsettled status in Brexit land. Is that right, Christoph? Yes, it's like everybody, uh, every EU, uh, <laughs> every EU p- uh, person in England at the moment, not knowing what's happening. I just let the politics go on and not, <laughs> not ruin, not ruin my mood. Uh, sometimes you see, uh, you see cynical tweets of me, like wonderful, uh, wonderful, uh, wonderful mornings in liberated England because. <laughs> Oh, yeah, it's it's a cynical way because nothing's changed. Uh, I already went out in and out of the country. Nothing's changed. We're still in transition period. And then the you, I, I find it funny that people were celebrating a transition period. To be fair, I and I was thinking, well, what would people who really got into a war, like in in forty five, what would they have thought when they were really liberated? Not like this, um, where they sell this as dictatorship but it's not dictatorship you still can do whatever you want so uh yeah let's not get on to politics because otherwise <laughs> we would all get very angry although i'm not a huge fan of everything in the eu either so uh, that's it but i thought everything was sold as i thought and etc everything was exaggerated in, in, in politics and eu and and it looked like it was a war between Europe and England. Well, it's not. And they choose to leave themselves, so they're not liberated. You don't have to celebrate that you're leaving yourself. So, who cares? They, they, they make me laugh, those tweets, Christoph. Yes, um, so- at, least, at least somebody laughs at them. Somebody, <laughs> some, some didn't get it. And I like it when they don't get it, uh, to be fair. <laughs> Okay, so we're, we're also on Instagram at Duncan.Castles and at Transfer Podcast. On Facebook, we are at Transfer Podcast and we now have a new YouTube channel, which is The Transfer Window. Um, if you like what you hear, please recommend us to your friends and review us on iTunes. Thank you for listening again and we will see you all through The Transfer Window. Yeah.